These are the Greek Myth Files, your entree into the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Greek Myth Files, which we're calling The Uses of Greek Myth Part 2. This is the third in our series, What Greek Myth Is and Is Not, where we ask and try and answer some basic questions about Greek myth. In today's episode, I interview Ken Dowden, Emeritus Professor of Classics at the University of Birmingham. He is the author of a number of books and articles on Greek myth, including Death of the Maiden, The Uses of Greek Mythology, and The Blackwell Companion to Greek Mythology. I caught up with him while he was on vacation in France, and we conducted our wide-ranging interview via Zoom, so the audio quality will not be as high as in other episodes. The interview has been edited for length and smoothness, but we have striven to retain the context for all the answers. My guest today is Professor Ken Dowden, who is Emeritus Professor at the University of Birmingham in the heart of England. He's a prolific scholar who's published a lot of books and articles on Greek myth, including one of my favorite classroom texts, The Uses of Greek Mythology. I'm very pleased to have him on our podcast. So welcome, Ken, and thanks for being on the show. I'm very grateful to you for thinking of including me. So let's go ahead and get started. My first question is, what led you to study Greek myth in the first place? Um, I spent a long part of my early career um, teaching Greek religion, Roman religion, and somehow mythology seemed a natural progression from that. Um, and what I found in practice was that people were more interested in the mythology than in the hard data of the rituals. And it somehow got into their psychology. I'd already got my teeth into one particular um, detective puzzle, you could call it, um, and I was building up material, because talking about mythology isn't easy, it doesn't sort of fall into natural patterns, and what you needed was a theme to take you through it, and my theme was, why was it, if you were a young girl in myth, you always ended up metamorphosed into a tree, sacrificed, or any one of a hundred fates. And the chances of living to be old enough to murder your husband were really very low indeed. So, so Ken, I think that this is a good segue into your first book, Death and the Maiden, which got a sort of reprise in the uses of Greek mythology, which I want to talk a little bit more about later. And perhaps you can give a brief overview of what Death and the Maiden had to offer its readers. Yes, it, it was an interesting project because not only a problem that girls kept dying and so forth in the mythology, but there turned out to be a solution. And that's a, a rare find in mythology. Take, for instance, the case of Agamemnon, um, the king leading his forces to Troy, and the fact, uh, and his daughter, Iphigenia, whom he must sacrifice before he can go to Troy. Um, it's a fascinating story. He's got to sacrifice his daughter to Artemis, the goddess Artemis, before uh, the troops can set out. And when he sacrifices her, 
she is snatched away and a deer is substituted on the altar by the goddess. She herself is taken to be a priestess of Artemis. Um, this story is situated at a place called Aulis, um, which is just opposite the island of Evia, where people take their holidays today. It's nice and cool with the sea breezes blowing across it. It turned out not to be an isolated myth. There were other myths of this type, where, for instance, a priest has to sacrifice his daughter. And they were found in the next state along in Attica, the territory of Athens. And together with these, at one of those sites, a site called Braurome, um, there was a ritual for young girls who were going into adulthood. And that, if you ever want to visit it, uh, is actually just next to the airport in Athens, the new airport, uh, Venizelos. So when you add all these bits together, what you get is you've got a story of a particular type, which is set in a shrine of Artemis. You've got a daughter who is approaching the age for marriage. You've got the father sacrificing, in inverted commas, uh, his daughter. Um, an animal is substituted, and the girl is now under the authority of Artemis, not of her father. And in parallel to that, real-life girls are being initiated as adult women. So you can see what's happened. Myth has dramatized the ending of girlhood as the death of the maiden. She leaves the authority of her father, who myth depicts as killing her. In fact, she undergoes the ritual. And it's that ritual that the myth is designed for. You know, one of the things that I'm always interested in as a scholar of myth is, you know, most people are, are interested in origins, right? Where does the myth come from? Yeah. But yeah. myth is not just about explaining things and can't be reduced to a simple expression of religion and so on. So turning to the uses of Greek myth, I noticed in the book you have a chapter on history, identity, um, arrival of gods at the cult site, yeah. um, discussions of initiation, landscape. So I wonder if you could tell us what motivated you to write this broader book called The Uses of Greek Myth, Mythology, excuse me. Yeah, um, it was really interesting. Um, a publisher came to me, um, uh, or the uh, publisher's commissioning editor, Richard Stoneman, great guy, and said that he was going to create uh, this series um, on approaching the ancient Greek world. And he reckoned myth mattered for how you looked at the ancient uh, world. And for me, this was a golden opportunity, because in writing about all these girls and their fates in Death and the Maiden, it had been plain as a pikestaff to me, that you had a methodology for handling myth. You, there was a sort of science of how you approach myth. And this has been the holy grail of students of mythology since, oh, I don't know, Carl Ottfried Muller in 1825, um, when he wrote his book, An Introduction to the Science of Mythology. And somewhere at the end of the rainbow, there is a set of methods by which you can determine where myths come from and why they're that shape. So one of the things that 
I always find when I'm writing a book is that you end up being very pleased with some things and not so pleased <laughs> with other things. Um, so what were you most pleased with about the book? Like, like what do you feel the book really did super well? I was very pleased with the open agenda of the book. So many of the uh, books that were written about Greek mythology before that were trying to swing some theory and to make you adopt it. Um, I took the view that, oh, I had my pet theory on initiation, but what I wanted to do was see the whole range of what was possible and leave the reader to make their own decisions about what mattered to them. But having done that, <laughs> I wanted to ensure they did it scientifically. And for that, I was really pleased to emphasize location, namely that where a myth ha happens matters. You don't just cite a myth in Athens as a, a choice of a novelist, as if you're going to set it in Chicago or something. Um, it's told in Athens because it matters to the people of Athens and it is their myth. And the other thing I was pleased with was the identification of mythology as a whole system of stories that could be told. And it's what the literary and philosophical people call an intertext. Namely, uh, when you talk about Greek mythology, you are thinking about every Greek myth you ever heard and anything you ever heard anybody say about it. And it's that huge explosion, that kaleidoscope of material that constitutes Greek mythology. At this point, I asked Ken Dowden to tell us a little bit more about his book in terms of what he thought he could have done better or what he could have included. And here is his answer. There was another topic that went AWOL, and that was creation myths. Um, everybody thinks that myths should be talking about the beginnings of the world, and that's what mythology is for. It may be what Christian mythology is for, or, or Jewish mythology, or any one of a hundred world mythologies. Um, but Greek mythology isn't very much concerned with creation. There are people who talk about it, but, you know, it doesn't have heroes in it. It's not very interesting, and it's all speculative anyway. So one of the things that um, is really interesting to me about trying to define myth, which we're going to get to in a, in, a, in a bit, but there's a lot of people out there who want to separate the difference between myth, which involves gods and fantastic creationism, et cetera, and then heroic legend, and then they also add sometimes a third one, which is the folk tale. Um, yeah. All of these divisions seem rather artificial to me. I'm wondering if you have a thought about the division between myth, legend, folktale, saga, etc. Yeah, um, it, it used to be uh, de rigueur to, at the beginning of your book on myth to talk about all those separate categories, which the author of uh, the book on myth would always assume that everybody was familiar with. And when you looked at it, the, the terms they were offering were as vague, if not more vague, than myth itself. And it, in a way, they just helped to make a complicated problem worse. And what you really needed to do was to get down to brass tacks. Myth starts, I mean, it's a very recent word. It only came into existence in oh, about the 1830s in English. Um, it had come out of um, Germans talking about, you know, the mythos, where they were just using a Greek word. 
so this word we use every day is a modern invention and it helps to get back to what it was used for. And what it was used for was to cover Greek myths. Not anybody else's myths, just Greek myths. Now, what I've always said about Greek mythology, and I said this in the companion to uh, Greek mythology that Neil Livingston and I did for Blackpool, is you know a Greek myth when you see one. You're not actually in doubt whether this is a Greek myth or not. You don't need a definition to hold your hand there. So a myth is anything that looks like a Greek myth. And if you want to talk about myth in other cultures, what you're saying is it occupies roughly, give or take, the same sort of space that a Greek myth does. But if you do hold my head against the wall and say, come on, Dowden, what is a Greek myth then? Well, the answer's got to be something like, it's what you have before history. The Greeks didn't have records, they didn't have archaeology, they weren't able to dig up a stone and say, this belongs to a high status dwelling or anything like that. Um, so what they had was their local traditions, which talked about the past and beginnings and when this thing came into existence. And of course, it was populated with gods and heroes because gods and heroes really don't put much of a look in in modern history, do they? So it, it was just great. You had this um, glorious past full of gods and heroes and occupying the slot where the history ought to be. This is a great segue to um, a quote that I want to read from your own book. So after 168 pages of talking <laughs> about the various different uses, and I think that's important to think about, you, you write as kind of a summary the picture which now emerges of Greek myth is hard to summarize. Plainly, it's not enough to allege that myth does some one thing or another. Greek myth is a complicated organism with a history of its own in both ancient and modern times. And I, and I think that when you think about Greek myth, which spans, let us say, from the late Bronze Age all the way till late antiquity, you're talking about 1600 years, yeah. and myth can't just do one thing, right? I mean, like myth yeah. is going to transform, it's going to metamorphose into different kind of aspects. And I wonder if you think that that's why the uses of Greek mythology is really actually a good title, because it's about what myth does, not what myth is. Yes, well, I won't claim t uh, credit for the title, The Uses of Greek Mythology. I think that was Richard Stoneman, too, if I remember rightly. We had this book, and the question was, what title did we not put on it, you know? Um, and I, I think you're right. I mean, it is a good title. It sort of captures something which is two feet on the ground about Greek mythology. But there are places, and I mean, this goes back to another thing I regret about the book, where I may have gone too far in the attempt to create a simple picture. And one of those areas is history. Um, I was very concerned to stop people reading myth as just distorted history. You know, the Trojan War must have happened in 1193 BC, and it lasted 10 years, so it finished in 1183 BC, and so forth. I mean, that is very, very simple, and it goes with all those people that try and find where the castle of King Arthur was. Was it at Glastonbury? You know, all these things. To a certain extent, um, this goes with um, archaeology proves the Bible true as an obsessive topic. And, you know, maybe that it does in this way or that way. 
Um, but it's not necessary for that to be the case. Now, in pressing the case that myth was different from history, I may have got a, uh, gone a step too far. And there was a very interesting series of ideas put forward by Margalit Finkelberg from Tel Aviv University, where what she showed was that patterns of how you come into control of a kingdom in uh, Greek mythology are intelligible. The only thing is, they're not the system that the ancient Greeks knew about, and they're not a system we know about, but they are a perfectly viable system. And the obvious conclusion from that is that something is creeping through from Mycenaean history into the mythological record. And the horrific conclusion that comes from that is some of these mythic heroes may be real people remembered in some sort of way. And that's actually quite frightening because also that you put alongside that the conclusion of Martin Nielsen back in 1935 that what mythology talks about is the Mycenaean centers of population, those centers of the second millennium BC of 1500, 1400, 1300 BC. That's what the myth's trying to talk about. And it's, it sounds like you know, the last echoes of the historical record of that lost people who were overwhelmed in the dark ages by uh, population movements and so forth. Moving forward in the interview, I asked Ken Dowden to tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that still face the study of myth today. It's not only the myths themselves and their Greek context, that would be too purist. Um, there's also the question of the history of ideas since then, and particularly over the last couple of hundred years, where there have been so many theories proposed about myth that are half about myth and half about modern times. So Sigmund Freud, the creator of psychoanalysis, um, you can love or hate psychoanalysis. Uh, personally, my sympathies are more with a book I, uh, I read in French, the, um, uh, which was called The Black Book of Psychoanalysis, and did a hatchet job on every psychoanalyst you ever come across. <laughs> but for good or for bad, Freud is part of our times, and he was desperately committed to Greek mythology. And of course, his Oedipus was his key case. And so you need to understand people like that and you need to understand when you're being modern. So, I mean, to take an obvious example, um, the Amazons. There you have this race of female warriors um, and you have the thought that maybe in ancient times, maybe in prehistoric times, there had been a nation of women ruling. Now, everything we know about the history of society tells us this isn't true. Um, and the Amazons, as a mythic construct, were constructed by Greek men, and they weren't constructed in order to promote a gender diversity agenda. Um, on the other hand, if you want to use the myth of the Amazons that way, then why shouldn't you? It's the Greek mythology is still alive. Um, it's, it's like the decay of radioactive isotopes. 
It's, it's got a formidable half-life and it's still radioactive and it's still dangerous, so careful how you handle it. Well, that does it for another episode of The Greek Myth Files. I'd like to thank our guest, Ken Dowden, for talking with us. And I want to encourage listeners to get his book, The Uses of Greek Mythology, which is a serious but accessible book on how Greek myth operated in its many functions. Great thanks also go to Samantha Kutsia, our sound engineer, and Jared Sims, whose song Brooklyn Tea is our theme music. You should go by and listen to his music. These have been The Greek Myth Files, signing out for just a little while. See you next time.